Let's begin in prayer this morning. God, who has been constant throughout the ages, we, uh, we come before you today and we honor your name. And uh, we are grateful for these scriptures, this word you've given to us throughout the generations. For it has sustained our journey, it has taught us the stories, and it continues to change and shape us, to challenge us, to move us, to comfort us in the different seasons of our lives. I pray this morning, as we open its pages, as we uncover more and dig deeper, that you would find us there and that you would draw us deeper into your heart through its pages. God, I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This library of books is an incredible library. I've spent more time with this set of books than any other collection, I think, out there. And what I've discovered in my time with these words, which I intend to be much more time over the years ahead, is that there is a lot here. More than a lifetime of study can reveal. You know, some books are worth reading once in a lifetime. And other books are maybe one that you pick up maybe a couple times in a lifetime. Others you may return to every year. It's just a favorite book of yours. It's become a story that you live life with. But these books, I never grow tired of these books because the more you dig, the more you find. But if you listen to the discourse in our culture that's often around these books, the story, the narrative that's also often given to us is that these books are primitive books. They're behind the times. We've moved past maybe the words that we find. And next week, I want to address that very question in more depth. Are these books behind the times or what relevance do they have, which I believe they have an ongoing relevance in an entirely important way that we need to understand better, be able to appeal to. What I want to do over the next 30 minutes or so is I want to tell six stories that are about digging a little bit deeper into this book with the hopes that you would take the next step in your journey deeper into this library of books. Just maybe a little bit of an encouragement this morning that there's more there for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves. And so today I want to talk about six things. I want to talk about bathroom commodes. The prodigal son, chariots, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, chooses wife, of course, and seat seats. We'll save that story for last. So first, about bathroom commodes. Recently, I heard the story about an old-fashioned woman who always was quite delicate and elegant, especially in her use of language. And she and her husband were planning a week's vacation in Florida. So she wrote to the particular campground they were going to and asked for a reservation. She wanted to make sure that that campground was fully equipped, but didn't know quite how to ask about the toilet facilities. Uh, She couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter, so after much deliberation, she finally came up with an old-fashioned term, bathroom commode. But when she wrote that down, she still felt a little uncomfortable with that idea, and so She tried to figure out how to refer to her question, and so she referred to the bathroom commode uh, merely as the B.C. Does the campground have its own B.C. is what she actually wrote. Well, the campground owner who received this letter uh, wasn't old-fashioned at all, and when he got the letter, he just couldn't figure out what she was referring to. That B.C. business really stumped him. 
After worrying about it for a while, he showed the letter to several campers, and they couldn't imagine what the lady meant either. So the campground owner finally came to the conclusion that the lady must be asking uh, about the location of the local Baptist church. And he sat down and wrote the following reply. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but now I take the pleasure of informing you that a BC is located nine miles north of the campground and is capable of uh, seating 250 people at one time. It's located uh, uh, in a beautiful pine grove and is opened only on Sundays and Wednesdays. I admit it's quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going regularly, but But no doubt, you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. My daughter met her husband at the BC. (laughs) Last time my wife and I went was six years ago, and it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time we were there. Sometimes it's so crowded that there are five to a seat. Now, it may interest you to know that right now there is a supper plan to raise money to buy more seats, and they're going to hold it in the basement of the BC. I'd like to say it pains me very much not to go more regularly, but it is surely not due to a lack of desire on my part. As we grow older, uh, it seems to be more of an effort, particularly in the cold weather. If you decide to come down to our campground, perhaps I could go with you for the first time you go, sit with you and introduce you to all the other older folks. We will, sure, uh, we will be sure to have a seat up front where you can be seen by everyone. Remember, we're a friendly community. Sincerely yours, the campground owner. Context is everything. Speaking of context, second story about a prodigal son. Prodigal son is one of the most uh, familiar stories we have that Jesus tells in the Gospels. And recently, I read about a professor who asked 12 students in his seminary class to read the story of the prodigal son with careful detail, to close their Bibles, and then to retell the story as faithfully as they could uh, to a partner. And none of those 12 American students mentioned a detail in the story that's found in verse 14. Open there with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. Open there to the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 15. I want to read verse 14. Listen to the detail that none of them recognize. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, none of them that were asked that question mentioned that detail about the famine that was there in the land, which is what precipitates that son's eventual return. There professor found this omission interesting, so he organized a larger experiment in which he had a hundred people read the story and retell it as accurately as possible to a partner. And only six of those hundred people recognized this detail as they retold the story. Now, this group was ethnically, racially, socioeconomically, and religiously diverse. The famine forgetters had only one thing in common. They were from the United States. Well, later, that same professor had the opportunity to try the experiment again, this time outside of the United States in St. Petersburg, Russia. He gathered 50 participants to read and retell the story of the prodigal son this time, an overwhelming 42 out of 50 participants mentioned the famine. Now, why would that be? 
Well, it's interesting if you know their history, just 70 years before this study, 670,000 people had died of starvation after a Nazi German siege of the capital city that began a three-year famine. Famine was very much a part of these people's story. And so they noticed this detail that we seemed to miss. Third, about chariots. The Bible was written by a a Jewish group of people who belonged to a Jewish minority living under the oppression of a succession of massive military superpowers who had conquered them. They lived under the control of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, the Persians, the Greeks, and then in the time of Jesus underneath the Roman Empire. And these people had experienced defeat generation after generation after generation. So imagine what that would have been like to have lived under the control of others. It's hard for us to imagine. The people of Israel knew what it was to live in subjection to a ruling superpower. They lived under the boot of the Egyptian superpower for 400 years, as we read about in the book of Exodus. But God brought a deliverer who led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. You remember the story, right? And do you remember the kind of transportation that Pharaoh's army used as they chased after these Israelites? chariots. See, the chariot was more than just a mode of transportation. It was the tank. It was the fighter jet of the ancient world. And when you don't have as many chariots or tanks or guns or fighter jets as whoever is conquering you at the moment, you have to look beyond your own strength, don't you? Beyond the strength of your oppressor for hope and for consolation. You have to trust that there are larger forces at work in the world, forces that are on your side. And centuries later, Israel has to continually remind themselves of this. And so in the book of Psalms, there's a psalm that's written, open there if you would with me, to Psalm 20. There's a detail there given about this very thing. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some of you sung songs with this verse in it. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do you see how this psalm would have been a comfort to these people who understood they didn't have as many chariots as those on the other side? But maybe there's a more important question for us. As citizens of the most powerful global military superpower the world has ever seen, is it possible that we might miss some of the themes of this library of books written by people who lived under the rule and domination of the superpower? Uh, powers of their day. I think this thought should humble us. It humbles me because these psalms were not written by people like me. These psalms were written by by refugees who were living on the run from other empires. And and so when Peter addresses the people that he writes to in 1 Peter, and he talks to them as if they're exiles, as if they're foreigners, I begin to wonder if there are things in this book that I miss that others in other situations may see much more clearly. Fourth, about that phrase, Jesus is Lord. There's a really strange verse that I want to point out to you from another one of these books. It's, it's in 1 Corinthians that I want to go for this story. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is addressing all kinds of issues in the church at Corinth. And in verse 3, there's a verse that I want to argue with. I just don't understand at all when I read it at first glance why this would be so difficult to utter the phrase that Paul references. 
1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's odd, isn't it? No one can say the phrase, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. What's so difficult about those three words? This is the kind of question about Scripture that ought to send us digging for context, send us digging and, and, and scratching further, because Scripture is like this onion, isn't it? it? It reveals more as we peel back the layers. And I wondered, as I was looking at this passage, surely there's more here. You see, I grew up singing that phrase, Jesus is Lord, without much thought to it. It just rolled off my tongue from an early age. So what's the big deal here in chapter 12, verse 3? With a little study, a little digging, it becomes more obvious. Because in those days, as people who were living in the Roman Empire, they believed and confessed that Caesar is Lord. That was the confession that was expected. That was the confession that saved some of them from persecution generations later as they got a certificate that proved they weren't part of this Christian sect that believed treasonous things who proclaimed another as Lord. They're making a claim when they say Jesus is Lord, not just about Jesus. They're also making a claim about what Caesar is not. And so this phrase could have cost them their lives. And yet we sing it without a second thought, in those days, you better believe it took the Holy Spirit to say a phrase as simple as that. Jesus is Lord is more than a song lyric. It's more than just a baptismal confession. It's a phrase that has teeth in it, a phrase some would call treasonous. Fifth, about Chusa's wife. <clears throat> I don't know many Chusas, do you? It's not a name that's hung around in our day. Sometimes we read things at a surface level and we miss the thing that's right in front of us. And Luke chapter 8 is one of those places. Open with me, if you would, to to Luke chapter 8. I want to read the first three verses of this chapter. And I want you to see something you've probably missed all your life. I've missed it and I've read it hundreds of times. But listen closely to the details of this passage. It's, it's remarkable what's here. Luke 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. <clears throat> Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. You've never noticed that before, have you? Some of you are wondering still what I'm talking about. I've read it hundreds of times. I've missed it hundreds of times until the other day. There were women who were funding Jesus' ministry. Yes, he may have been homeless, but he sure had benefactors who were helping, wealthy female friends whom he had helped, who were helping to pay the bills. And one of those women was a woman named Joanna. Who's Joanna? I don't remember her in my VBS stories. Yes, Joanna's the the wife of Chusa, which begs another question. Who is Chusa? And it says it there in verses 1, 2, 3. Did you notice? Chusa is the manager of Herod's household. Now that 
is a bomb dropped right in the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a book, a library of books we call the Bible. A little background. Herod the Great was the king of Israel who died around the year four. And he was a towering figure who dominated the socio-political landscape in Palestine for, for 40 years building massive palaces and theaters and fortresses and killing lots of people, even his own family. He, he actually killed his wife at one point, one of the many, and, and some of his own sons. He ordered the execution of children when Jesus was born. You remember this story? One of Herod's sons, after he died, was on the throne over the region called the Galilee. He, his name was Herod Antipas. He was a very rich man. He owned lots of land, had palaces and guards and servants, a massive household, the biggest in the country. And who managed this king's household? Well, Chusa did. So Chusa would have been responsible for a massive amount of wealth, which would have brought him a massive amount of wealth. He shares his wealth with his wife, right? Who is traveling with an itinerant rabbi, who just happens to be Jesus, who's preaching another kingdom, a kingdom that stands to last long past the other kingdom of Rome that they're within. So let's connect all the dots for a moment here. Herod wants to kill Jesus because Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom other than Herod's. And that makes Jesus a political threat. But Jesus is able to travel around announcing this subversive message of a different kingdom than Herod's because there's a group of women who travel with Jesus and pay his bills, including a woman named Joanna who has lots of money because her husband is the household manager who gets paid by, you guessed it, Herod. In other words, Herod is indirectly funding the very resistance movement he's trying to stamp out. Fascinating, isn't it? Just a few words in a paragraph in the eighth chapter of a book in a library of books we call the Bible. And finally, the moment you've all been waiting for, what in the world is a tzitzit? In Mark chapter 5, there are several stories about the Jesus healing people. There's a story about a guy named Legion that Jesus heals, a madman. There's a story about... Uh, a young girl, Jairus' daughter, who, who gets healed. But there's a story in the midst of this of another woman who's had this bleeding issue for 12 years. And because she's had this bleeding issue and she's given all this money to doctors and suffered at the hands of doctors, it said. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. She, uh, she's come up lost for what to do next. She's unclean. She's left out of community. The, this isn't just a sickness. It becomes more than that for this woman. And the way we often tell her story is, isn't this woman a woman of courage? To be willing to step up and to touch the hem of Jesus' garment in order to be healed in the midst of the scene. And then, of course, Jesus points her out. Who just touched me? I, I noticed my power leaving me. This is certainly a story of courage. Let me assure you of that. But if you dig deeper, there's more to this story that we haven't quite seen. This woman knew the Scriptures. She knew it better than we do. So I want to do some digging with you for just a moment. Open up, if you would, to Numbers. And then I'm going to go to Malachi after that to point out another thing. This woman knew the Scriptures better than we do because what she does, we didn't know and wouldn't know to do. So open with me, if you would, to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15, verse 37. 
and following. The Lord gives a message to Moses that's passed on in this fourth book of the Bible. And this woman's read it before. Numbers 15, verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you were to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, a quick Hebrew lesson, if you'll give me a moment. The Hebrew word translated as tassels in this passage is the word tzitzit. It's fun to say, so I want you to say it with me if you would. Tzitzit. It's hard to say. We don't really have our language quite like that. But tzitzit is is this tassel that's to hang off of their prayer shawl, prayer robe, their clothing, so that they'll be constantly reminded when they wear these of the commands that God gave them, of how they're to live, how they're created to live. Now, Hebrews, uh, there's another Hebrew word for corner that's in this passage, and it's the word kanaf. It's not as fun to say as tzitzit, but say it with me if you would, kanaf. And to this day, many observant Jews, if you will look at them, they wear a prayer shawl to obey this text. And the prayer shawl shows up in a lot of interesting places in Scripture, and one of the most significant one of those places is in the other book I want to share with you, in Malachi, the last book of the Jewish scriptures, as at least in our uh, ordering of them. Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2, listen to these words. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Now, this is not your normal passage. Frolicking like calves, I don't remember another one like that. Malachi is receiving a prophecy of God that he is passing off to the people of God, that the Messiah one day will be one like a son of righteousness who will rise with healing in its rays or in other translations, in its wings. And guess the word Malachi uses for wings. The word is kanaf. The same word in numbers that refers to the edge of a garment to which these tassels, these seat seats were to be attached. If we go back to the story in Mark chapter 5, all of a sudden this comes alive in new ways because this woman in Mark chapter 5 knows exactly what she's doing. She knows that the Messiah will have power in the kanaf or in the tzitzit of his kanaf. In other words, you'll know the Messiah has come when healing comes from the corner of his prayer shawl. Now that's good, isn't it? You with me now? When this woman grabs the edge of Jesus' garment, she's not just hoping beyond hope. She's read her Bible, and she's confessing in this moment that this is the Messiah. The righteousness rises with the sun of righteousness, and that healing comes in the corners of his garment. And some people think this library is just a book. 
I believe the Bible's like an onion. The more you peel away its layers, the more it reveals. There's no end, actually, to the layers it reveals if you keep digging away at it. And that's where I want to take us to one more passage in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, which is a book we'll actually come back to next week. I'm excited for what I get to share next week as I come back to that question about, is the Bible behind the times? Well, no, it's not. I'll share more next week. But this passage right here calls us to a deeper level. That's really what these first six stories have been about, is to peel back the layer and just remind us there's more there than we may have seen. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 verse 1. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance that from acts that lead to death or, and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. You see, the writer of Hebrews is pushing these people to go further than they've gone in the past, to keep digging away at these scriptures, to keep peeling back the onion. Part of our growth as the people of God is, is to keep peeling away, not to be people who are fed by others, but who learn to provide nourishment for ourselves as the Spirit works with us through the Scriptures. That's actually, I think, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. That every infant moves from milk to meat. Apparently, Scripture is not vegetarian in its uh, disposition, or at least this writer He challenges him and he says, every infant moves on. The same is true in our relationship with the scriptures. We must move from needing a teacher to being able to feed ourselves. It'd be strange for an adult to be walking around with a bottle, wouldn't it? At some point, we're called to move from the bottle to solid food. We're called to move from milk to meat. And no matter where you are in your journey with the Bible, there is more meat there. There's more to uncover and learn. And we as leaders are not doing our job if we are not equipping you to read this library better and to push you to go deeper yourselves. We don't want to develop dependency issues where you wait on me as your preacher to teach the Bible. We want each of us to, to feel like more confident so that we can read the Bible and grow on our own as well. If you've ever had a, a surgical procedure done before, you know that you don't want to be the first one to be cut on by a doctor, right? You want that doctor to have been through school, to have seen other surgeries, to learn all the language, and to have cut on a lot of people before they get to you. And as I think about uh, this idea of proficiency in the scriptures, I'm led back to that idea. Because there's a vocabulary that every expert in their field develops and learns as they grow in their field, right? All of you have grown in your particular language and understanding and the nuances of the field that you work in. And when you're with people in in a field of expertise, you're able to speak in shorthand in ways that others wouldn't possibly understand, right? And in your early days, there were probably people above you in the organization who spoke in shorthand and you were trying to catch up. That's an expectation, right? That it comes with expertise in every field from financial to medical to education to law to science to physical therapy and even to ministry. And when we chose our field, we knew that was part of the deal. A surgeon and her nurses need to have a common language they can use in the middle of a procedure. Because it's important to know which scalpel in particular you're referring to and which artery to go for. 
So my curiosity is, why do we find it odd that there would be a process of learning new vocabulary and language when we grow in our understanding of Scripture as followers of God as well? There's a whole language to this faith, isn't there? There's stories. There's background. And it's important that we be a back-to-the-Bible people who are nuanced, who are growing, who are learning more and more. And yes, early on it may feel like we'll never catch up to those around us. But with more study and digging, it's amazing how we begin to pick up this language and these stories. That's what we try to do with our kids is to teach them these things. And it is possible to read the Scriptures in a simple way and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But if you want to grow in your faith, it takes work, doesn't it? It takes learning. It's important for us to grow in our understanding of the context and the vocabulary and the background stories and in our skills needed to interpret and apply the Scriptures well. And what I hope is that today's sermon is an encouragement to you to do that. One way this sermon can be heard is, well, I guess I'll never know the tools to be able to dig deeper, so I must just let the experts do that work for me. And that is not what I want you to walk away with. Because there are resources, and there are teachers, and there are efforts, especially in our day with the amount of podcasts and teaching that are available for free all over the place. You can listen to some of the best teachers every single week. You can do that work, and many of you have done that work. And you're growing, and you're seeing new things in Scripture, and it's, it's coming alive in entirely new ways. You're seeing stories, and all of a sudden there's meaning that you see that you didn't see before. There's layers of discovery ahead of all of us, if we have the tools to dig deeper. I have layers of discovery ahead of me, and that's why I go back. And I'll tell you what, even John Mabry and Cindy Maloney and Harold Tidwell have layers to discover as well. And that's the brilliance of this book, that we all have room to grow. So when I first started skiing, it was an experience that my dad said we would never do again because I couldn't carry my own skis. He said, next time we go, you're going to be able to carry them because we're not doing this again. It was my brother and it was me, and we went to ski school. And if any of you have been to ski school before, you know how they teach you to ski at first. There's a very important principle they try to teach you, and it's this thing called the snowplow, right? Maybe your teacher called it something different. But the idea is if you point your skis parallel down the mountain, you can pick up a lot of speed. And the first lesson of ski school is to help you not run into a tree, not cause harm, because if you get those skis pointed down and you don't know how to stop them, it's trouble. Some of you know that from experience in bruises, don't you? Maybe broken bones. And so they start in this place where they teach you that if you'll actually point your skis together like this, you'll actually be able to kind of slowly work your way down the mountain. And, And skiing can be fun at that level. I remember as a kid kind of growing in that, but there comes a point where Skiing is going to get pretty old if you don't learn a better way to ski. You don't learn to point those skis parallel down and learn how to maneuver those skis in such a way. Skiing can be so much better than the snowplow. It takes a little bit of risk. It takes a little bit of learning. It takes some effort. It takes some falling down. But skiing can be more fun if you move past the initial way you learn to do it. Allow me to be confessional for a moment. This is a safe Place, correct? When Holly's out of town and I'm tasked with feeding the kids, the options on the menu are far less than when she is present. Got about four things on the menu cereal, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, ramen noodles, which isn't really even a meal, is it? 
and mac and cheese. And it's not even the good mac and cheese, it's easy mac. I thought this was a safe place. Y'all aren't supposed to be laughing. It's a sad situation for a grown man to admit that he can't nourish his family well. It's not okay. It's actually kind of embarrassing. Because a grown man ought to grow to the point that he can not just feed himself, but also others. Or in the words of Jesus, man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, man shall not live on cereal, PB&J, ramen, and Easy Mac. This library of books is inspired. It's deep. It's layered. It's my favorite library. And if you'll dig a little more, what you'll find is there are plenty more Joannas in there that you've never noticed before. There are plenty more details about famines that you just happened to look over and didn't quite see the first time around. And there's more seat seats offering healing that we know nothing about yet. There's a reason why this book was written. It was breathed for a particular purpose, and we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks, but there's a more interesting question than that. My question this morning is, why did this book stick around all these years? Why were these words, why were these stories preserved, and why have they meant so much to the people of God throughout the centuries, and even today in 2018? And I guess that begs other questions. I mean, why do the Psalms stick? And I think it's because they show us what a healthy spiritual life looks like. They name everything that's going on inside of a person, and they give it language, and they give it expression, and they help us articulate it and get it out. Because if you don't drag those thoughts and those words up, then it's buried down in here somewhere and it will come out in other ways. That's the gift of the Psalms. Why do the prophets endure? Because they fearlessly speak truth to power. They call out the injustice and oppression of systems that have gone wrong. They hold those in leadership accountable for decisions that they make. They are the first articulations in human history of a coherent vision for justice. Why did the parable of the prodigal son stick around all these years? Why did it get preserved? Because it's a story about exile, about all the ways that we wander from a love that's been ours the whole time looking for our worth and our value in all sorts of things and in all sorts of people when we've been a child of a father who will welcome us home at any moment if we just turn around and run to him. And then there's the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob pretends he's his brother Esau because that seems to be more worthy of the gifts of the father. This is a story about a man becoming comfortable in his own skin, owning up to his true self. And some of us need the same story today. Or Daniel. Daniel's stripped of his name and his family and his customs, and he's taken without his own interest to another land that's not his own land. And he's taught customs and teaching of another place. Everything known and familiar is taken from him. And yet he maintains his sense of self and his integrity in the midst of being taken to another home. Some of you know what that's like. I want to encourage you 
to read this library of books again. I want to encourage you to go with a fine-tooth comb and maybe a commentary or teacher beside you to read it again because there is always more to be found. There's always more treasure hidden every time we go back. May we discover that treasure as we go back this week. Let's pray as we close this morning. God, I'm I'm so grateful for these stories. I'm grateful for details about Joanna, who chooses wife, who ends up taking down an entire empire without Herod knowing it over time. I'm grateful for this woman that didn't just display courage, but, but, but displayed a proficiency in the scriptures that many of us long to have ourselves and a trust and a faith of those scriptures to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, which is another phrase, God, that rolls off our lips, but it takes the Holy Spirit in its original context because, boy, the implications are big if we say things like that. God, I thank you for stories that remind us that we're a little bit removed from this story. Because as the ones with all the chariots, it's hard to put our trust again in you because it's easier to trust in things we can see. God, I thank you for all these stories and the ways that they uh, make us alive in Jesus Christ, the way they point us to uh, salvation that's found in his name and the ways that they uh, form us more into his character. And God, that's our desire is that we would go back. And so this week, God, in the midst of all those nuggets that are just hidden away, waiting for us to discover them, may we see this book as a light for our feet, as a lamp to our path. And may, as we open its pages, may you help us to see more clearly who you call us to be. I pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.